BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So let's talk the real science of Santa Claus. The guy in the red suit with the pointy hat, the white furry trim, and the tall black boots with the eight flying reindeers and the bag of goodies. It goes back to a group of indigenous Arctic Circle dwellers, the Kamchatales and the Koryaks of Siberia specifically. But it's actually all the way around the North Pole. We've had Steve Larson on this program before talking about the native people of Finland as well. So Santa really does come from the North Pole. On the night of the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, a Koryak shaman would gather hallucinogenic mushrooms called Amanita muscaria, or fly agaric in English is how we call them. These are the red mushrooms with white spots. You're starting to see a parallel here. The shaman would hang them on the lower branches of pine trees to dry them out before taking them home back to the village. Or alternatively, he could take them in and put them in a sock and hang the sock over the fireplace to dry them out. Socks and fireplaces. The problem with fly agaric or Amanita muscaria mushrooms is that they are poisonous. In addition to getting you high, they contain a poison. And so the way that they would get rid of the poison is they would feed them to reindeer. Reindeer love these things. And their livers have an enzyme that breaks down and detoxifies the poison in this mushroom, but does not break down the hallucinogen, which I believe is dimethyltryptamine, DMT, in the mushroom. And so the shaman would feed the mushrooms to the reindeer and then follow them around until they peed and gather up that yellow snow and they'd eat or drink the yellow snow as part of a religious ritual. The reindeer, by the way, love these mushrooms. They eat them whenever they can. When a shaman went out to gather the mushrooms, he would wear a red outfit with white trim or white dots on it in honor of the mushroom's colors. He'd gather the tree-dried fly agarics and some reindeer urine in a large sack and then go back to the yurt, which was the traditional form of housing for people in that region at that time, where the villagers would gather for the solstice ceremony. But how did he get in? Well, the yurts, these are round houses and they're covered with snow, but they do have a hole at the very top for the fire exhaust, the smoke to go out, and that's how you get in and out of a yurt in the winter. So he would go down the chimney with his sack full of reindeer urine or sack full of mushrooms, slide down that central pole to give them to him. When you take this stuff, when you take dimethyltryptamine, DMT, it's a hallucinogen like LSD, and it makes you feel like you're flying. 
And the reindeer get really frisky, too, from eating this stuff, and they kind of look like they're flying. And one part of the legend is that when the shaman took the fly agaric, took this mushroom, or the reindeer urine, that the shaman and the reindeer together would fly to the North Star and get gifts of knowledge, which they would then bring back and share with the community. That tradition then was carried down to Great Britain by the ancient Druids, and the stories got mixed up with Germanic and Nordic myths and came over here with English settlers and we had Turkish St. Nicholas. But even by the 1930s, there was no consensus about Santa Claus. In fact, most Americans didn't use Santa Claus in any way in celebration of Christmas. That came about with Clement Clark Moore's famous poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas. And then in the 1930s, the thing that really kicked off Santa, as we know him in modern times, was the Coca-Cola Company. And they did an ad. They made Santa fat. Up until that point, Santa's had been characterized as skinny. So amazing stuff. Absolutely amazing stuff. Yes, the true science of Christmas. Is that Jingle Bells? That's, that's great. Thank you, Sean. So let me just put a punctuation mark on some of this stuff and just clarify my specific thinking on it. I, I, this is all coming to a head right now, I think, in America, this whole issue of politics and religion, much like the issue of business and, and, and politics. I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell out there saying, well, you, you guys in the corporate world should just keep your noses to, to the grindstone and keep your mouths shut and keep putting money in our pockets. And, and and basically, you know, the same kind of crisis is happening around religion. The Republican Party has exploited religion so much for the last 40 years. And, and uh, you know, I mean, with, with like just transparent stuff like, you know, oh, we have to have prayers before everything and, all, you know, all the... It, which is exactly the opposite, by the way. If you go back and read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said very clearly, you know, don't pray in public. Just don't do it. Every time, you know, every time I go to church and people want to pray in public, I, I feel uncomfortable. It's right there in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, go into your closet, close the door, and pray in secret. He said, if you pray in public, you know, you're just doing that for your own ego. He's unambiguous about it. But I think that the this distinction that that between religion and spirituality is a really important one. Religion offers a couple of things. And these are very, very powerful things. They're deeply embedded in our, our personness, in our, in our inner world. One of those is community. For many people, their church is their community or is the best part of their community. And that's a powerful thing. And so you have a church leader now who's not just a church leader, but also a community leader. And then they get political. And what does that do to the community? It, it has the potential to shatter the community. Or it can turn the community psychopathic. This is how crusades happen. Right? This, this is what Osama bin Laden exploited in a different religion. But this is what, you know, it's, it's all the same stuff. So number one, they offer community. Number two, a, a well-functioning church, you know, like the, the Unity Church that I used to go to years ago. Um, it's, been, it's been quite a few years since I've been in a church, but uh, outside of ceremonial stuff. But, but uh, offered, and, and the SRF church that we used to go to and the Coptic church, 
all of them offered an entryway, an access point, a touch point, a button into a spiritual experience. Not, a, not an angry experience, not a, not a, uh, uh, a fearful experience, not a us-them experience, but a spiritual experience. I am convinced, you know, there's that book, The God Spot, years ago that, that, said, that purported to have identified a part of our brain that, that when stimulated connects us to this feeling of oneness with all of the universe. And the theory was that as we die, that part of the brain activates and lights up and we merge and or we experience uh, merging into, into the Godhead or into the, the consciousness of the whole entire universe. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a cool thing. And apparently epileptics, people with epilepsy, experience this frequently. And, and so a lot of your mystics throughout history, and Joan of Arc, for example, was, was apparently an epileptic. St. Francis of Assisi. But, and perhaps St. John of the Cross. Um, but how, whatever the mechanism is, I really believe, just from my own personal experience, of having touched those moments of transcendence, both with and without uh, antheogens, I think is the word. Mind-altering drugs. I think that we're wired for this, right? We're wired for this sense of something greater than ourselves. I think it's right up there with love as just fundamental, or maybe it's, it's a, it is another dimension of love. love. Love and the spiritual experience are like coming out of the same place. And the love that we feel for each other and for the people close to us is like a little piece of this larger experience that, that religion seeks to bring forward. And I, th I think this is important stuff. We had, you know, the, we, I spent a week with uh, a group of about 20 people with His Holiness the Dalai Lama back in 99, I think the year it was. Uh, Harrison Ford narrated a movie about it. It's called Dalai Lama Renaissance, a documentary. And, and we talked about this at some length with His Holiness, about the, the spiritual experience and Buddhism's constant quest for, for that spiritual experience um, or you could say non-quest, <laughs> because one of the things one of the things he pointed out is, you know, the more you try, the less you get there. Which is kind of uh, talk about it's it's like a, a Rinzai Zen koan, you know, uh, 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 K O A N. Uh, these thought puzzles that are so confounding that you end up your brain goes tilt and you ex suddenly experience enlightenment. Uh, as opposed to Soto Zen, where you experience enlightenment through sitting in meditation. But I think that there's like really powerful stuff here in religion. Religion being the organized form of spirituality that we practice. There's really powerful stuff in there that the charlatans in the Republican Party and the money-grubbing televangelists got their hands on in a big way in the 1980s. I mean, you've got now, you know, billionaire. Uh, and multi-millionaire televangelists. It's not good for believers, it's not good for the country, it's not good for politics, it's not good for the churches, and now because they're, they're refusing to wear masks or take vaccines, it's killing people. Welcome back, 34 minutes past the hour. Tom Harvin here with you and uh, picking up your phone calls. Dennis in Long Grove, Iowa. Hey Dennis, what's on your mind? 
Well, thanks, Tom. Uh, to dovetail on a couple of things that you just were saying about the value of the church, one of them, of course, would be that over the millennia it has taught people to understand the golden rule. Another would be that it's... Oh, hang on just a second, Dennis. You can look at any indigenous or aboriginal society that has ever been chronicled in history. Um, Peter Farb does a great job of this in his book, Man's Rise to Civilization, where he looks at 34 Native American communities at first contact in the the 1600s. And every single one of them had at the core of their culture the equivalent of the golden rule. I don't think that it helps religion to say that people only learn morality by becoming religious. I just don't think that's a, a legitimate argument. I agree. Just to point out, you know, one other thing, and it's a shame that all this has happened because it has also provided sanctuary for women over the over the centuries who really need it because of and you know other the, they, yeah, in, yeah, and other and other minorities. True, I call primarily because I'm a uh, a longtime church person. I uh, as a child, uh, as an adult, I became a, an, an elder in the Presbyterian Church. Uh, served in many capacities to the church, but I've left the church because of the discussion and the things that you've been talking about. And uh, it, you know politics and the conservative movement has kind of stripped me of my faith, and it's really sad. Uh, They've also kind of stripped me of my patriotism, which is also very sad and kind of sickens me. So the conversation you're having here is important, and I I appreciate the fact that you're you're addressing it with with respect and, uh, you know, in moderation in terms of the content of your talk. I don't know what more to add, but I just felt that I was, you know, I've been deeply touched by these things in my own life, and uh, and the conservatives have taken things from me that, you know, I don't know that will be replaced. Do you think it's possible, Dennis, that those of us who have felt alienated from church-going because of the intrusion of politics into the religious realm. And even in some cases, uh, churches preaching what might have at once been considered morality, but is now you know, heavily uh, tainted with politics. Do you think it's possible that, that, that people moving away from organized religion might actually be moving deeper into a personal spirituality? I, I, th- that's been my personal experience. That, I think I'm probably more, quote, spiritual now than I've ever been in my life, other than maybe when I first started really, you know, on that path of exploration, which was in my teens. But it maybe, maybe in some regards, uh, church going is an impediment to personal spiritual development. Well, it, you know, that hasn't been my experience. You know, I've, I've, uh, I attended church and I was deeply invested and involved in church community and so on. And I have left, you know, one of the reasons really is because it seems to me that Jesus is the, uh, was the original bleeding heart liberal, but Mm -hmm. you know, too much of organized religion and the, and the people who claim to be Christians are antithetical to that thought. And um, so i become more of an agnostic, almost leaning toward atheism. And it's, it's just a kind of a dramatic turnaround. And I think there are tens of thousands, if not, you know, but not millions. But what I'm trying to identify, Dennis, what I'm trying to identify is the difference in this conversation with you is the difference between a belief system and an experience. 
you know, I have very real doubts about the, quote, divinity of Jesus being any more or less divine than any of the rest of us and suspect that large parts of the story around him, which, you know, were borrowed from Zoroastrianism and, and previous cultures, you know, have served to perpetuate a, quote, religion, an institutional religion. But I do think he was a mystic, and I think that his teachings are important and valuable, and you can have that spiritual experience. And there's no doubt in my mind that if there is a God, you know, if there is some, some individual intellectual power in the universe, that it's not an old man sitting on a throne. That, you know, mm -hmm. my personal take on it is that it is literally everything in creation, that we're all part of one giant thing, and that is consciousness. Even matter is consciousness. That, that's my shtick, right? My, that's my personal. And I could argue atheism and still feel that I'm connected to something that is extraordinary and grand and, and fills the universe, and thus mm -hmm. have a spiritual experience. Yeah, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's there are totally weird here? out there that, no, you're not, you don't sound weird at all. I've heard of philosophies that uh, can be argued literally where, you know, there's an energy about the universe, and I'm not going to say this probably very articulately, but, uh, you know, there are, there are energies at play within us and throughout the universe that represent, you know, uh, the concept of what you've said. Yeah, I mean, I tried this out on, on uh, Eric Tyson, Eric, oh man, <laughs> you know who I'm talking about, the famous scientist, when he was on our show recently, excuse me, DeGrasse Tyson, and uh, you know, I said, we all have consciousness, and we are a little tiny speck of the universe, isn't it possible that our consciousness is a small part of a much larger consciousness, the entire universe is conscious? And he, he kind of dismissed it and said, you know, that's like saying that the the cream swirling in your coffee when you stir it is the coffee, and it's not. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, I didn't want to debate it with him. But anyhow, Dennis, I, I've got to move along. But thank you. Thank you for a thoughtful conversation. I appreciate your call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ann in Seattle. Hey, Ann, what's up? Hi. Well, first of all, I'd like to just respond to the previous caller briefly that 
a lot of mainline Protestant denominations are not supporting those right-wing ideologies or, for that matter, the intrusion of religion on the public space. So, um, I, you know, coming from that perspective, it's frustrating to see in the news all the time about the, what Christianity says about such and such, because it's usually the pretty noisy fundamentalists, and that's not the only option. But the reason I wanted to call in was to offer my own perspective on the separation of church and state. Um, as a lawyer, I believe strongly in First Amendment separation, but as a Christian who grew up with a lot of Lutheran ministers in my Swedish family, I also share your interest in spirituality. In fact, in my 50s, I went to Yale Divinity School, and I never really answered my spiritual questions. I would ask questions hmm. like, you know, isn't the Bible just a historical book that's written by men, for men, and mostly about men? And that wasn't really that popular among the theologians. <laughs> so here's my <laughs> point. I regret the polarization of this issue of separation of church and state. I don't think you have to be an agnostic or an atheist, as the previous caller mentioned he's tempted to be, in order to support this principle of separation. In fact, recently, I contacted the Freedom from Religion Foundation, which many of your callers might recognize listeners as uh, Ron Reagan's group, and I asked them if I could join and be comfortable as someone, a person of faith, even if my faith is fairly uncertain. Could I identify as Christian and be comfortable in their group? Because I believe in the principles that they're setting forward. And I never got any response. So I guess I just summarize by saying I think we need more people of faith and uncertain faith and some faith or some spirituality to step up and support separation of religion, because otherwise we just hear the noisiest voices on the right. Well, and, and keep in mind, Madison was an avid churchgoer, and he was freaked out about the possibility that government would corrupt religion and, and didn't right. entirely disagree with Jefferson's fear that religion would corrupt government. He just didn't think it was, he thought our government was well, far and, more and resilient think, than that. And I think Jefferson was reading the Koran, so there was a lot more... Oh, yeah heterogeneity early on, which has been rejected again by the right. Yeah, um, yeah I think he, he would so frequently recite from it. To be offered by religious people. I have known many people who devoted a lot of their time and efforts based on their spiritual feelings, but at the same time, it can be an evil. Yeah. It's a great power. That's the thing that I think is, is so easily missed, is that there is uh, exploiting this core human instinct, much like you know uh, people who make money exploiting sex, for example. Um, it's, it's deep inside us. It's, it's a very powerful thing, and, and we have to recognize it. And thank you. Thank you very much for a thoughtful comment. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And I don't think we can forget that, you know, Christianity was used to justify slavery. It was, uh, it was used to justify the doctrine of discovery, to the exploitation of native people. And welcome back. Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hey, how you doing? I have to agree with your first caller. I think religion's the problem. I would have to okay. paraphrase that as the major organized religions. I don't think it's actually religion, period. Um, 
And I go back to the Bible, okay? Uh, unlike the pagan religions, which taught you respect for nature and your surroundings, the Bible gave man stewardship over the planet. And that's where the problem is, because that puts us at a higher degree. Instead of being part of something, we're now above it. So the hierarchical organization of uh, God, man, nature uh, is, I, you know, that's a good point, Mark. I mean, it, it's kind that's of built right into it. Least. And, and it's patriarchal yeah, I mean, as well. You know, God as a, as a man and woman as the screw up in the Garden of Eden. I mean, that's just the way I've looked at it. Because if you look at all the pagan religions, what, what, what did all of them have in common? Respect for their nature, respect for the planet, for the world they live in. Yeah, yeah, totally get it. Mark, thank you. Alan in Crown Point, Indiana. Hey, hey Alan, what's up? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, go into the model of the church. Churches are very important to uh, neighborhoods and the cities in the country, and they do a very functional. You have a church family. They care about each other. They work with each other, and they support each other. And I just want to just uh, make that clear. I think you know that as well as I do. But uh, with tax purposes, that's another story. Maybe that's an opinion. But I want to just put that into your effect today that churches are very important. And even when changing I don't disagree. Okay. I would put a caveat on that, though. I think that some of these large television ministries, I mean, I've seen Franklin Graham on TV pitching his little prayer line. You call into the prayer line, they're going to get your name and address, and they're going to mercilessly beg you for money for the rest of your life. You know, and he's, in my opinion, he's taking advantage of people who are desperate, who are in need, are in crisis. You've got the old Tammy Faye Baker and Jim Jim Baker. Jim Baker's still out there hustling stuff. He keeps getting busted for, you know, he had a phony COVID cure and stuff like that. There are some ravening wolves among the sheeps, uh, among the sheep, to quote uh, John Four, as I recall. But yeah, I think that, you know, community is an important thing and, and local churches provide community. And frankly, if local churches had to pay an income tax on money left over at the end of the year, they probably would not be paying an income tax because the kind of work that they do, they, they just, you know, they don't show a fund balance at the end of the year anyway. Okay. I appreciate that. I uh, appreciate your comment there. Okay. Thank you, Alan. Good, good to hear from you. Gloria in Meadville, Pennsylvania. Hey, Gloria, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, I'm, I'm just calling. I'm a Christian, but I'm not a, like a right wing, and, and I've always had a, a big problem with them because they're they're kind of hijacked our religion for me i didn't have this realization that there was these like two probably more but at least from my perspective two factions of christianity but uh it was a slow realization for me to realize what was going on with these right wingers anyway i'm united methodist i'm lucky right now i have a pretty liberal pastor at my church we're gonna split because of the LGBTQ issue, and that's fine with me. Oh, but geez. my point is that we can't all quit the church. You know, one of your other callers said he quit. He was so disgusted. And, and I am, too, with some of the people that I actually attend church with. But we can't all quit, because then the right-wingers have the loudest voice in the room. And to me, you know, it referring back to Jesus, what he did, he called out the religious leaders, and not that I'm some high-minded person that I can do that, but but still, the the opposition has to be there to these right-wingers. Um, I was yeah. a member of a, a, a local peace activist group, and we protested the war in Iraq. 
And and for the life of me, I could not understand why every Christian in the county wasn't at our rallies. And there were honestly a lot of atheists and agnostics that were coming to protest the war too. So. I, you know, I'm not the kind of person that thinks that you have to belong to a church or anything to be a, a really good person and a spiritual person. But but I yeah. still believe that I'm going to keep going to church, and I'm still going to attend Bible studies, and I'm still going to, you know, write letters to the editor condemning what some of these right-wing Christians are doing. You can't serve two masters. You know, you talked good about the you. evangelicals being so rich, you know. You can't serve God and money. So, you know, all the basic things to me that Jesus said, you know, love God, love your neighbors, yourself, all those things are pertinent. And we need to, if we claim to be true Christians, we need to keep bringing the basics out. People make everything so complicated. And Jesus, you know, he was a complicated person, but he did say very basic things that that gave us a... you know, a uh, uh, thing to go by to live our lives. So I think we just need to keep saying it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Gloria. And that's why I, I continue to call myself a Christian, almost in defiance of those people who say, well, you're not a Christian if you don't check these particular boxes and, right. you know, uh, <laughs> believe in the resurrection, stuff like that. You know, maybe, maybe not. But, you know, I still consider myself a Christian. I think those teachings are really important and culturally very important. Thank you, Gloria. Edward in Long Beach, California. Hey, Edward, what's up? Yeah, you know, I've been observing the Middle East situation between Palestine and Israel And, well, there is no Palestine yet, or again, there was a Palestine before 1948. But the Palestinians are there, and I see and hear a lot of predominantly the fundamentalist Christians here in America with a lot of power and money supporting Israel no matter what they do. They're supporting occupation, they're supporting demolishing Palestinian family homes, they're they're supporting ethnic cleansing of the Christians and Muslims on their own land. And they're suffocating Gaza. There's no food and medicine. There's a blockade. The Israeli military shoots at the fishermen that are fishing off Gaza in the Holy Land. And it's just amazing to me as a Christian that they take the Bible so literally they think that prophecy has to be fulfilled over the dead bodies of the Palestinians. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, it's, and it's all to bring back Jesus. And why do you want to bring back Jesus? Because then we'll be in charge. <laughs> it's like, yeah, right. then... The whole world, every knee shall bow, every voice proclaim, right? How can they forget what Jesus taught to treat others as you would want to be treated and to love your neighbor and love love God? I mean, there's Christians and Muslims living there. There are people there in the West Bank and these colonized, the settlers, it's against international law. And for some reason, you know, our government continues to support Israel no matter what they do. And how is that ever going to bring about a peaceful two-state solution with justice? It isn't because... Well, the Biden administration just made an overture toward a two-state, another overture toward a two-state solution. I think, you know, Trump really set us back a long way. They keep getting the green light and they keep taking more land. I mean, they're they're claiming to want to negotiate over a pizza, but they're eating up all the pizza. They're eating up. They're taking all the land. In other words, it it doesn't make sense that they would have any incentive unless we hold the ten billion dollars that we give them, you know, as collateral for them to get to the negotiating table and talk peace. 
Yeah, could be. I, I think it's only three, but I may be wrong. Edward, thank you. You know, at least it was three when it came out of Camp David. You know, three billion to the Egyptians, three billion to the Israelis. Let's have peace. We could sure use some peace. Frank in Detroit. Hey, Frank, thanks for uh, thanks for watching. What's on your mind today? Hey, well, first of all, let me say I am without question not an atheist. Now, I'm a lot of other things, good and bad. But uh, with respect to religion, the last guy who stole part of my thunder, the three most prominent religions, and I'm just picking on them because they've caused the most damage, were used to justify the slave trade, uh, the greatest genocide in human history, recorded history, molestation of children, just all sorts of atrocities that you could possibly think of for centuries. The problem I have with religion is this. At some point, every religion that I've studied requires that the adherent relinquish reason at some point. That's a bad thing. If you just look at the wars, I mean, you look at my ancestors. I have a mixed uh, indigenous and African-American background. Look what they did to the American Indians. And it was justified by religion. They're pagan. We don't have to worry about murdering them. The same with slavery. You know, I'll let you go with this. My best friend, may he rest in peace. And I'm, I'm from the east side of Detroit. Well, he had a saying. There's not much difference between a preacher and a pimp. They're all selling dreams. And hmm. when you believe in those dreams, they can be used to justify anything you want. Yeah, I think that's a reality and a sad one. Frank, thank you. Thank you. Boy, with some really extraordinary uh, perspectives here. Alfredo in Mountain View, California. Hey, Alfredo, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Hey, Tom, thank you for taking my call as usual. Yeah, regarding religion, you know, you don't have to be a religious person to be a good person. Religions are irrational. They're fairy tales. There was a three-piece series on, I think it's on YouTube, it's still available, by the BBC and Jonathan Miller called A Brief History of Disbelief. I don't know if you've seen that. But it basically... It has, uh, it features quotes from famous mathematicians and, and, uh, you know, like Pythagoras, Plutarch, and many others who question the existence of God. And it's a really, really good series, uh, and I recommend any of your viewers to watch it. Also, uh, Bill Maher did a good movie called Religious. I don't don't know if you've seen that, but these are good exposés of how religions are used by the powerful to manipulate people. And they're based on, you know, fallacies. Mm-hmm. I think that it, we could summarize it really simply, Alfredo, by saying that spirituality is an experience, religion is an institution. Does that make sense? And institutions being human constructs are always vulnerable. Oh, Alfredo hung up. Are all, always vulnerable to corruption by humans and, you know, in the context of uh, human foibles. Kusai in Campo, California. Am I saying your name right? Kusai. Kusai. Hey, yes. Kusai, what's up? Um, I wanted to mention about the religions that the, uh, the Christianity and the church has been uh, part and parcel of the United States foreign policy for many, many years, as well as the West in general, and it's always used to instigate or start 
a seed for future involvement in places where they really had no influence. And the other thing is also, this is how the West kind of created a new class of people in the Middle East in the 1800s and created the future leaders of the Middle East and kind of uh, used the religion itself and the church to further their uh, separation and further their uh, involvement in all kind of uh, things that are happening in the Middle East. For the best example I'll give you is, you know, the turn of the century in, in the early 1800s, there was no Christianity in China, and then they sent missionaries, and then back in the 1950s and 1960s, the concern became how to protect the Christians of China who didn't exist 100 or 150 years ago. And I don't think that was happening to save mm-hmm. souls. I think that was happening to make sure that we still have a a foothold to be involved somewhere. And that the same Christianity is the one that created the new westernized Arabs and North Africans that eventually became the tools of the West to create the havoc that is happening in the Middle East and been happening for the last hundred years or so. And then the last thing Yeah, I think I think Kusai, you're making the, the same point that the last caller did, that, that that religion is an institution and whenever you have an institution that is run by people, people will try to use it to their own no, no, purposes. Absolutely, but what I wanted to say is that it's part and parcel of our foreign policy. It's not that we are separating uh-huh. from anything here. Yeah, you're right. You know, you're right. And selling. Yeah, I'm sorry, we're out of time. But y- yes, and selling that foreign policy by pitching it to people who call who identify as being Christian or Jewish is a whole hell of a lot easier. We'll be right back. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. book today we're reading from elon papp's book the ethnic cleansing of palestine this is from the preface it's titled the red house the red house was a typical early tel avivian building the pride of the jewish builders and craftsmen who toiled over the 1920s it had been designed to house the head office of the local workers council it remained such until toward the end of 1947 it became the headquarters of the haganah the main zionist underground militia in palestine Located near the sea on Yarkon Street in the northern part of Tel Aviv, the building formed another fine addition to the first Hebrew city on the Mediterranean, the White City as its literati and pundits affectionately called it. For in those days, unlike today, the immaculate whiteness of his houses still bathed the town as a whole in the opulent brightness so typical of Mediterranean port cities of that era and that region. It was a site for sore eyes, elegantly fusing Bauhaus motifs with native Palestinian architecture in an admixture that was called Levantine, in the least derogatory sense of the term. Such, too, was the Red House. Its simple rectangular features graced with frontal arches that framed the entrance and supported the balconies of its two upper stories. 
It was either its association with the workers' movement that had inspired the adjective red, or its pinkish tinge that it acquired during sunset that had given the house its name. The former was more fitting as the building continued to be associated with the Zionist version of socialism when, in the 1970s, it became the main office for Israel's kibbutzim movement. Houses like this, important historical remnants of the mandatory period, prompted UNESCO in 2003 to designate Tel Aviv as a World Heritage Site. Today, the house is no longer there, a victim of development, which has raised this architectural relic to the ground to make room for a car park next to the new Sheraton Hotel. Thus, in this street, too, no trace is left of the white city, which it has slowly transmogrified into the sprawling, polluted, extravagant metropolis that is the modern Tel Aviv. In this building on a cold Wednesday afternoon, 10 March 1948, a group of 11 men, veteran Zionist leaders together with young military Jewish officers, put the final touches on a plan for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. That same evening, military orders were dispatched to the units on the ground to prepare for the systematic expulsion of Palestinians from vast areas of the country. The orders came from a detailed description of the methods to be employed to forcibly evict the people. Large-scale intimidation, laying siege to and bombarding villages and population centers, setting fire to homes, properties, goods, expulsion, demolition, and finally planting mines among the rubble to prevent any of the expelled inhabitants from returning. Each unit was issued with its own list of villages and neighborhoods as the targets of the master plan. Codename Plan D, Dalit in Hebrew, this was the fourth and final version of less substantial plans that outlined the fate the Zionists had in store for Palestine and consequently for its native population. The previous three schemes had articulated only obscurely how the Zionist leadership contemplated dealing with the presence of so many Palestinians living in the land that the Jewish national movement coveted as its own. This fourth and last blueprint spelled it out clearly and unambiguously, quote, the Palestinians have to go, end quote. In the words of one of the first historians to note the significance of that plan, Simcha Flappen, the military campaign against the Arabs, including the conquest and destruction of the rural areas, was set forth in the Haganah's plan to let. The aim for the plan was, in fact, the destruction of both the rural and urban areas of Palestine. As the first chapters of this book will attempt to show, this plan was both the inevitable product of the Zionist ideological impulse to have an exclusively Jewish presence in Palestine, and a response to developments on the ground once the British cabinet had decided to end the mandate. Clashes with local Palestinian militias provided the perfect context and pretext for implementing the ideological vision of an ethnically cleansed Palestine. The Zionist policy was first based on retaliation against Palestinian attacks in February of 1947, and it transformed into an initiative to ethnically cleanse the country as a whole in March of 1948. Once the decision was taken, it took six months to complete the mission. When it was over, more than half of Palestine's native population, close to 800,000 people, had been uprooted. 531 villages had been destroyed, and 11 urban neighborhoods had been emptied of their inhabitants. The plan decided upon on 10 March 1948, and above all its systematic implementation in the following months, was a clear-cut case of ethnic cleansing operation regarded under international law today as a crime against humanity. After the Holocaust, it has become impossible to conceal large-scale crimes against humanity. Our modern communication-driven world, especially since the upsurge of electronic media, no longer allows human-made catastrophes to remain hidden from the public eye or to be denied. And yet one such crime has been erased almost totally from the global public memory, the disposition of the Palestinians in 1948 by Israel. 
This, the most formative element in the modern history of the land of Palestine, has ever since been systematically denied and is still today not recognized as an historical fact, let alone acknowledged as a crime that needs to be confronted politically as well as morally. Ethnic cleansing is a crime against humanity, and the people who perpetrate it today are considered criminals to be brought before special tribunals. It may be difficult to decide how one ought to refer to or deal with in the legal sphere those who initiated and perpetrated ethnic cleansing in Palestine in 1948, but it's impossible to reconstruct their crimes. Anyhow, it continues the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Roger in Indianapolis. Hey, Roger, thank you for, for, for waiting as long as you have. And thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind? Uh, Brother Tom, appreciate you. I just wanted to put my two cents in on this religious thing. Uh, I was mm-hmm. raised in the United Church of Christ. I had to learn the catechism. They pounded it in my head before I could get baptized. And I can recite today the you know, Apostles' Creed. My opinion is that the Bible could be reduced to one page. The first item on that page would be the golden rule. And for those who want to tap dance around that one, the PS would be, oh, if you didn't get that, here's the Ten Commandments. And that would be all that would be necessary. And that's my input for the day. Thank you. I appreciate all you do. Well, thank you, Roger. Don't you think that um, Matthew 25 and the Sermon on the Mount might even be more important than the Ten Commandments? I suppose. I suppose. I haven't given that much thought. This, these were the things that I landed on mm-hmm. coming out of my religious upbringing and then g- going through my 69 years of exploration with Buddhism and, and all the other things that I've, I've looked into. So, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's I get a very appropriate addition. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Roger. Nice to hear from you. Lynn in Olympia, Washington. Hey, Lynn, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. First of all, uh, I consider myself Jewish by birth and spiritual by inclination, and I agree with totally what you said. I mean, I agree that God is energy, God, you know, everything is energy and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I just agree with what you said, because it just seems that, and I'm also a blind individual, too, but, you know, I think that I have been an explorer all my life about various uh, faiths and religions and stuff like that, mostly Jewish, and I had to learn about Judaism because I didn't know anything. We grew up secular Judaism. And, you know, I'm, I'm not crazy about the state of Israel either, and I support Palestinian rights. And I think it's it's just tough for some of us. And in the blind community, there are so many Christians, it's hard to be Jewish because people just mm. spout their, you know, church, prayer, you know, Christian beliefs, and it drives me crazy sometimes because, you know, and I remind my son that Jews are only 2% of the world's population. But, you know, I think the whole idea of people proselytizing, and luckily Jews do not proselytize, in terms of what they do and how they use domination, dominance, to purvey their religions is a really sad thing, and that's what I have to say. Yeah, I, and I'm with you. And there was a, a time in my life when I was absolutely fascinated by Judaism. I'm still convinced that my, my grandmother, my father's mother, was Jewish. And, you know, we've not been able to find 
one way or the other. But it was extraordinary to me to discover how when I talked to rabbis about this, they were like, eh, you know, come back when you really want to make some kind of a commitment because we're really not interested in proselytizing you. Do you think, Lynn, that, that, you know, which I admired, do you think that the blind community, I know some other disabled uh, disability communities have been particular v- victims or targets for evangel- evangelicals for evangelism. Uh, is that the case with the blind community? I think so, because, you know, again, it's a sense of, of belonging and community. Even though the churches and the synagogues don't really treat blind people very well a lot of times, I just moved to Olympia a year ago in Washington, a little more than a year ago. I've lived in about six states, so, you know, uh, my, my son lives in the area, that's why I'm here. But, you know, I think I think so. I think it's, they're, they're easy fodder, you know, they're depressed, they're whatever, and so it's an easy target. Vulnerable, yeah. yeah. I get it. Lynn, thank you very much for the call. Thanks for multiple perspectives that you brought to this program and to our conversation. It's much appreciated. Tom Hartman here with you, and uh, Tom in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Tom, what's on your mind today? Oh, well, I've been really enjoying the uh, discussion on religion, you know, and I wanted to kind mm-hmm. of underscore how particularly Christianity, because that seems what we're mostly talking about. But I wanted to underscore some my life experience and how religion can be a force for good and, and uh, enlightenment and also a force for uh, oppression and uh, years ago, in 1988 to be exact, I uh, spent some time in Guatemala uh, traveling. And uh, as you probably know, you know, in Central America, uh, all through the Americas, the Indians practice an amalgam of uh, Catholicism and uh, their own spirituality. If you've never visited one of those churches, mm-hmm. it's, it's a fascinating thing to see. Well, along about the early 80s, a guy called uh, Rios Monk, a uh, military guy, took over in a coup. And of course, he was praised by the international community. He had the backing of the U.S. and all that. And he ran afoul of the church down there, the Catholic Church, because of his treatment. He was very oppressive. And, well, he killed people, you know, and tortured them. And he ran afoul of the church and became a fundamentalist. And I, I believe he may become a minister. But he was buddies with Falwell and all those guys you were talking about earlier. And what he did by the time I was there in 88, he brought all these clowns, I call them, missionaries in to proselytize and try to convert people. And basically what it was was driving a wedge, you know, in the indigenous community. And um, it was it was sad. It was heartbreaking to see. Uh, you know, people had signs in their window where Catholics leave us alone. And uh, you can kind of see the parallel to what's happened here, you know, with the, the fundamentalists. It's, in other words, uh, don't worry about that you're poor and don't have three meals a day and... Uh, no clean water, but God will reward you, you know, if you just shut up. And, right. <laughs> you know, whereas at that yeah. time, the Catholic Church... Working was, the sugar cane fields. You know, yeah, the Catholic Church was practicing a lot of um, liberation theology, and they were trying to liberate people in this world. But on the other hand, more recently, you know, I live here in New Mexico, about 120 miles north of here, there's this 
wonderful Benedictine monastery that's called Christ in the Desert. Uh, my wife and I, neither of us practice religion. You know, we, uh, we, we try to visit there once a year. Uh, we haven't been able to go because mm-hmm. of COVID. And it's it's the opposite side of the coin, Tom. It's it's, it's you know. <laughs> I mean, it's not enough to make you convert necessarily, but to watch these people, these monks, they live by example. They live a simple life. Mm-hmm. They work, they welcome, everybody's welcome. Their whole, that is St. Benedict's uh, creed, is that anybody who shows up is welcome as if he or she were Christ himself. Um, yeah, welcome and, the stranger. You know, there, the yeah, you know what I'm saying? Pardon? Yeah. I said, yeah, welcome no, and, the stranger, and, right out of Matthew, actually it's Matthew 25, but yeah. Oh yeah, you're more averse in the Bible, but when you visit, I mean, all you're asked to do is observe a certain amount of silence. You're not, you don't have to go to the services, you don't have to, but you can help out and you can, in other words, it's a couple of days of peace, quiet, spirituality, and um, yeah. I just think that's much more powerful to see people leading by example. Than by, yeah. I agree, and, and it's and it's and, and it's why when, when I say I've been saying for some time I think ch- churches should be taxed because they use our resources just like everything else. The exception that I make to that are monasteries because they don't necessarily have a means to produce the money to pay the tax, uh, whereas churches do. Yeah. Taxing churches would not hurt small churches because if you don't show a quote profit, then you don't have to pay a tax. I'm, we're talking income taxes here, although I suppose property yeah. taxes might hit them. But, uh, you know, Tom, along those same lines, I recall back, uh, I wrote about this actually in Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, which I wrote in the 90s. Um, I had been on the mailing list of a bunch of religious organizations and churches, uh, you know, left over from my days uh, being a, a real religious seeker back in the 70s. And I got this uh, unsolicited in the mail, this magazine uh, called Brown Gold from this group called New Tribes Mission. They're still around, they got a website. And it was just heartbreaking to read the letters from these missionaries in the field that were being funded by the people who got this magazine. They would they would talk about how, you know, my wife and I are missionaries to the, you know, what's, you know, some unsayable un, un, uh, uh, name of a tribe, you know, unpronounceable tribe down in the Brazilian Amazon. And we're having such a problem convincing these people that they're all sinners because they're all happy and they seem to have a good life. But we're, we're trying really hard to convince them that they're sinners and they need Jesus to, to resolve their sin, but they're not buying it. Please pray that they will be convicted in the spirit and 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 yeah. realize you know their own sinfulness um you know and they run around without clothes sometimes and oh, oh my god and i'm just i'm reading this magazine thinking this is friggin cultural genocide being paid for mm-hmm. by uh, probably well-intentioned but I, you know how you could read this and not see what it is um, people all over the country yeah. it's just mind-boggling tom thanks for the story thanks for thanks for sharing your experience with us um, it's, there's so much, you know, there, there's, there, there can be so much good coming out of religion. And, and I, you know, and I think that we're seeing kind of a, a small mini reformation now with Francis and the Catholic church and so much evil has come out of religion over the years. And it's not unique to any one particular religion, although some seem to be more problematic than others at different stages in their development, but, uh, it's an institution. Susan in Decatur, Georgia. Hey, Susan, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. So many things. But let me just say, 
that it was white colonizers that were upset and disappointed with their church in Europe that felt the need to take their ideals and mix it with a little bit of racism when they came over here and murdered all the natives. Well, they were upset with their their government in Europe which was trying to suppress their church. And they and so they came over here and said, well, we'll just take over the government. And which they did in the state of Massachusetts right up until 1778. Yes, and I, look, I am a very proud, educated atheist. Uh, I was born and raised Southern Baptist uh, with my family and uh, found that very disingenuous. Um, don't appreciate going to a Southern Baptist church uh, being felt like the preacher's been a little bit racist to me. <laughs> I just yeah. don't like that. Uh, well, they didn't like the, my I mean, the Southern family. Baptist church has they, become they, the white church, basically. Yeah, they, they were very upset. The preachers were very upset at my local church here in Georgia uh, that we were a mixed family. That upset them greatly, and they made a point to call it out in the middle of the congregation. Um, So, yeah, proud atheist here. And let me just say that I've been on Facebook forever, and I'm on some atheist pages, and I'm used to Trump uh, supporters coming on these atheist pages spouting their evangelical beliefs. However, now that Trump has definitely lost, these Trump supporters that you can go back five months ago on their Facebook and see how evangelical they are, are suddenly atheists. Really? I wonder how many of those yeah. are just trolls. They're just, I mean, you know, Facebook know. A, a couple of months ago said that they deleted a billion, uh, if, I were, if I'm remembering this correctly. I mean, it's hard to imagine I, that it could have been that many. Maybe I, maybe I read it wrong, but it just deleted well, some was- massive number. Of phony accounts. That was Trump right? paying Facebook a billion dollars for a misinformation campaign, right? You know, I, I shouldn't quote numbers without the statistics right in front of me. So, uh, but, you know, take it okay. with a grain of salt. But they did say that they deleted some incredible massive number. So anyway, I, I've got to I've got to move along here, Susan. But thank you very much for the call and, and spot on Paul in Phoenix. Hey, Paul, what's up? We, we have about a minute to the end of the hour. That's plenty of time, Tom. Thank you very much. Uh, This is one of my pet peeve topics, and I I appreciate you bringing it up. But here's a real-life example of something that happened during the For the People legislation uh, hearing on Mm -hmm. the Senate floor. Literally, Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith in Mississippi pulled out a dollar bill, recited the words, In God We Trust, and used that as an example to keep African-Americans from engaging in their souls to the polls, you know, uh, ritual on, on Sunday, because, get this, God would be mad because they were doing it on the Sabbath because of something he said in Exodus in the Bible. So because God would be mad, we can't have black people voting on the weekends. She literally said that on the Senate floor during the hearings. And it'll probably get her (laughs) reelected. Absolutely. Paul, thank you. Thank you. A perfect uh, punctuation mark, an exclamation mark to the hour.
We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 